Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. In the previous program, I was talking about the differences between the milk of the scriptures and the meat of the scriptures, what is often referred to as the differences between milk and solid food. And this was described by the writer of the letter to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 5 and in Hebrews chapter 6. In Hebrews chapter 5, starting in verse 12, it is written, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment." And I was explaining in the previous program that this gives you a description of what the milk of the scriptures are. Because in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 1 he says, Therefore leaving the elementary teaching, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation. With reference to verse 12 in chapter 5 just above it, that you need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles. So when you have the elementary teaching in verse 1 of chapter 6, elementary principles of chapter 5, verse 12, that those two together gives me a clear indication that these elementary principles or these elementary teachings are the ones described in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And so knowing this, I believe we have right here a definition of the milk of the scriptures. And so in this program, I'd like to look at this a little bit more closely in order to really explain and express what the milk of the scriptures really are, and so that you can have an appreciation for what this writer is truly saying when you have to move beyond this, you have to move beyond these things, if you're going to grow to the point where you can have solid food, and so that you can also be valid teachers of others with regards to teaching others about the Lord Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, he speaks about repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. Now, we could look at this and simply say, well, repentance from dead works. We could say that's a repentance from sin, and that certainly could be a reasonable definition towards that. But then it also says of faith towards God, and we would perhaps consider that to be a fundamental doctrine or a fundamental teaching that a person would need to understand. And this certainly is true, without question. The only debate that I can see concerning that would be, what does that really mean? of having faith towards God. In most cases, people mean, well, you just have to have faith. You know, if there's something that you cannot explain, 
then when you see something that you cannot explain and you do not understand, then you must just simply trust. You have to just believe anyway. That's what most people mean when they see the word faith, especially faith towards God. And so if there's something you don't understand or you don't appreciate or you don't want to believe, then you have to have faith. You just have to believe anyway. I personally do not believe that that's what that means. I personally believe that this means that there is something clearly revealed to you, clearly understandable, and you have to trust what has been clearly revealed to you, that there has been truth clearly presented, and even though you may not fully understand it, I understand that, but you must respond to that and trust the Lord concerning that, and then see how that may have an effect in your life, not your belief in the truth, but how the truth may have an effect in your life if you will respond in accordance with that truth. A simple way to say that is that the Lord reveals the truth to us, and we should just simply respond. Whether we believe it or not is not really the issue, but if it is true, then let's go ahead and go follow through with that, even keeping in mind that maybe it's not. But if it is, let's see how that plays out. If it really is true, then let's follow through with that and incorporate it within our lives. Let's respond to that truth that God has revealed to us and see what he may reveal to us as we live, what he will reveal to us concerning that particular truth. In other words, I don't think you have to blindly believe. I think that he will give more evidence towards our belief as we proceed walking in our daily lives. But this idea of having faith towards God requires the revelation of something. It requires a revelation of something that's true. In verse 2, this is Hebrews chapter 6, verse 2, he talks about instruction about washings. Well, what washings could he possibly be talking about? What could these washings be? In most cases, people assume that this has to do with the subject of baptism, or baptisms, and so they go through the scriptures looking for all the passages that have to do with baptism, and I do believe that there is some partial truth to that. However, when it comes to this word washings in the plural, I think it has to do with a lot more than just baptism. I personally believe that this has to do with the washings that are described in the law, that the law of Moses has a lot to say about ritual washings. It also has a lot to say about faith towards God, and it also has a lot to say about repentance, especially repentance from sins. And so while I find that many people will look at this and go into the New Testament concerning these subjects, I personally believe that a lot of it is actually to be found in what we would consider to be the Old Covenant. Consider, for example, the laying on of hands, also in verse 2 where it says of instruction about washings and laying on of hands. In most cases, people are going into the scriptures looking for those events when authority is transferred from one person to another. That is not the predominant teaching concerning the laying on of hands in the scriptures. The predominant teaching concerning the laying on of hands has to do with laying your hands on animals who you are sacrificing on behalf of your sins. That is the primary subject concerning the laying on of hands. There are other issues, certainly, that most people are looking at the transference of authority, but I personally do not believe that is the primary 
purpose of the writer putting this here, because there is a lot that can be said concerning the laying on of hands. But what I want to emphasize at this moment is only to say that this is mainly found in the Old Covenant. It is in the Old Testament. The resurrection of the dead, that also is a fundamental teaching that people are actually going to be raised from the dead. But when the Lord Jesus was questioned about this doctrine, when people asked him about the resurrection, namely the the Sadducees, when the Sadducees spoke with the Lord Jesus towards the end of his ministry, it was just a few days before his death, about two or three days before that, he was examined by the four leadership groups in Jerusalem, and the Sadducees asked him about the resurrection. And his response to that was not to go into the New Testament. It wasn't even written yet. He went into the Old Testament, the Old Testament scriptures, and he gave the explanation that our God is the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Now, why would God, if he is so immense, if he is so awesome, if he is so powerful, why would he refer to himself or identify himself as a God of a bunch of dead people? Why would he do that? How impressive is that going to be, right? I mean, think about it. The Lord says, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, and I am the God of Jacob. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are dead, and they will never live again. They have been annihilated in some way to the extent where it is as if they never existed, except now in our memories. I'm a really awesome God. I'm so awesome. I'm so incredible that I could not even keep them alive after they physically die and have a place for them in my spiritual eternal kingdom. That's not a very impressive God. I would say that that God certainly is not worth much effort or much time or much interest. I personally wouldn't give any of my time to getting to know that particular God. I mean, if I only have a short period of time to live between now and the day that I die, why would I bother with a God who isn't going to even keep me alive after I'm dead? Why would I be concerned about eternal things at all? There's no reason to be concerned about eternal things. The only thing I would have would be these worldly things, and so I might as well just eat, drink, and be merry because I'm going to die, and then I'll be completely annihilated. In other words, for us to say that there is going to be a resurrection of the dead, that has to do with the Lord establishing himself as our God and him intervening in our lives, not only our lives now, but also to do so in a way that would show that he's going to intervene in our lives in the future. And with that, I believe that we can have a better understanding of this from the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. And then in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 2, at the end of verse 2, he says, and eternal judgment. That eternal judgment is also a very important teaching a principle that would be considered to be elementary, that would be considered to be the milk of the scriptures. And certainly the Lord Jesus had a lot to say, a lot to say about eternal judgment. In fact, you could perhaps argue that he had more to say about eternal judgment than just about anything. I often get emails, questions, letters, telephone calls. People ask me a lot about hell, for example. They ask me about eternal judgment, the eternal nature of hell, and whether or not people are going to end up in hell. Uh, People are often very concerned about uh, people who are in their family, close relatives, uh, spouses, children, parents, uh, who reject Jesus. They die, and then they want to know, they want some kind of assurance that 
that they have some potential chance of seeing them in heaven, that they're not necessarily going to go to hell. And I can certainly appreciate that. I have many people that I would consider to be very close to me as well, and I have a great concern for them. And in addition to that, I have concern for other people that I don't know at all. I have concern for them too. It's not that I don't have concern. It's just that the problem is is that I am not the one who's going to be making those decisions. I personally don't think that's a problem. I just think that's a problem when people are asking me for conclusions or they're asking me to tell them what's actually going to happen because I am not the one who's going to be deciding who ends up in hell or who doesn't. I believe that the Lord Jesus is the one who is going to be making those decisions ultimately, and I believe that the evidence is overwhelmingly clear, according to what he has already said, that there definitely is going to be an eternal judgment, and that that judgment will actually be eternal. Eternal in the sense that it will never end. Not eternal in the sense that it's going to be just for uh, a certain age, or a certain eon, or something like that, I believe that this type of eternal judgment is beyond that. That that may be true in a certain definitive sense. However, there's much more to it than just that. Much more to it than just that. And so I believe that if anybody has any questions concerning hell, that they should first ask the Lord Jesus. And they don't even have to ask. All they have to do is go into the scriptures and see what he has already had to say about the subject. So if you will go into the scriptures and see what he has already had to say about the subject, I think that you'll have a pretty good understanding of that particular subject. This, of course, is found in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but I would still consider that to be part of the Old Covenant. And the reason why I say that is because the New Covenant did not really go into effect until after he died. According to the definition of the New Covenant, that the Lord would make with the house of Israel, as defined in Jeremiah chapter 31, the Lord said that he would establish a new covenant because he would remember our sins no more. That tells me that when he remembers our sins no more, he will then be able to instantiate or invoke the new covenant. And when that is invoked, then there will be a clear distinction between the old and the new covenants. But this is the point, and that is that all of these subjects are found in the Old Covenant. All of these subjects are found in the law. That's where these subjects are found. And so if I go into these subjects, that's where I'm going to go. I'm going to go into the scriptures with reference to the Old Testament and start with those. Certainly, there are many passages in the New Testament that address these subjects as well. However, I would not even dare to touch those personally until after I first address these subjects from the perspective of the law, from the perspective of the Old Covenant, because that's where these things were actually defined. And when these subjects were presented to the people in Israel, they were presented to the people in Israel who already had a very good foundation in these subjects as it was related, as it was expressed in the Mosaic Law. And so if I'm going to present these, that's where I'm going to start. I'm not going to start by assuming that miraculously people all of a sudden spontaneously have an understanding of the Law of Moses. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to do that because I have found, without exception, that people do not truly grasp the depth, the real content 
of what's really described in these fundamental principles of these elementary principles, these elementary teachings that are referred to as the milk of the scriptures. So having said that, I'm going to go back up into Hebrews chapter 5 verse 14 before I give you the ultimate statement concerning how you can distinguish between the milk and the meat of the scriptures. In Hebrews chapter 5 verse 14 it is written, but solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. It's the second half of this verse that I'd like to refer to. That your senses have been trained, that you can discern between good and evil. This means that if you can discern between good and evil, then you will be prepared for solid food. You will be prepared for the real issues, the real meat of the scriptures, the real things, the real stuff for mature believers to mature and continually grow Believers in Christ Jesus, that you must understand the distinction between good and evil first. Now, it does not say explicitly that you have to understand the differences between good and evil, although I do believe that that's very important. It really says that you need to understand both good and evil. The differences is just simply a way to define each one, but that you have to know both and that they are both actually packaged together in a specific context. Now, what I understand about my relationship with Christ Jesus is that it is not on the basis of the knowledge of good and evil. It is on the basis of the inheritance that I have in Christ Jesus. And I've talked about this in many subjects that I've already done work on concerning the will of God and our identity in Christ and things like that. But what I'd really like to focus on at this moment is something that relates to a series that I did on spiritual warfare, which is concerning good and evil. When did this subject of good and evil actually come up? Well, it came up in Genesis chapter 3. That's when it came up. It was the first sermon of the devil. That's where it got started. It was when the devil, it was when Satan himself advertised to Eve that if she would know the difference between good and evil, then she could be like God. Or if she knew what good and evil was, then she could be like God. That was the message of the devil. Then she could be a better person, or she could reach her full potential, or however you would want to consider it. That was the original satanic lie that caused the fall of humanity. And for some reason, people have forgotten that that's where it got started, that that's what started the whole problem that we are faced with right now. That's what started the problem between man and God. It was this deception that if you only knew what was good and evil, then you could live as God intended you to live. And so what people have done, because they have forgotten this, is they have assumed that their maturity is based on their understanding of what is good and evil, that if they do what is good and they don't do what is evil, then sure enough, they'll be good Christians. But that is the message of the devil. It is this same message that the devil presented. And I go into this in more detail in the series of programs that I did on spiritual warfare. I would like to encourage you to listen to those, of course. But again, in this context, I'd like you to understand that this is something that was introduced in Genesis chapter 3. And when it was introduced, Adam and Eve did not really apparently have a full grasp or an understanding of what good and evil was truly about. And when you look at the law of Moses, as it was revealed a couple thousand years later, 
you look at the law of Moses, really the law is nothing more than a definition of the differences between good and evil, of that which is good and that which is evil. And so if you can determine, if you can discern what good and evil is about, then you will have a good understanding of the law. If you have a good understanding of the law, you can certainly discern between the two. And you certainly don't need to have spiritual discernment in order to recognize this or to realize this. Any lost person can discern between what is good and evil. That is not what determines whether or not a person is mature in the faith. If that was the case, then the Pharisees in the time of Jesus would have been mature Christians. They would have been prepared for solid food. So there's much more to it than just this. It's not just about the knowledge of good and evil or being able to discern what is good and evil. There is something much more than just that statement. But I'm telling you this in order to emphasize the importance of recognizing that the milk of the scriptures is the old covenant. That's the milk of the scriptures. The milk of the scriptures is about discerning the differences between good and evil. That's in the old covenant. It is about understanding repentance from dead works, and those are defined in the Old Covenant. It is about having faith towards God, and that was defined in the Old Covenant and through the patriarchs and through the prophets. It is about understanding the instructions about washings and laying on of hands, and those are all defined in the Old Covenant. It is about understanding the resurrection of the dead, and that was defined in the Old Covenant, and eternal judgment, which was also defined in the Old Covenant. All of this was in the Old Covenant. I do believe that having an understanding of the Old Covenant is extremely important to a believer. Extremely important. It is the necessary foundation that the Lord uses in order to build upon, and he builds the new life in Christ Jesus on top of that. So then, if the Old Covenant describes the milk of the Scriptures, what describes the meat of the Scriptures? I believe that the meat of the scriptures or the solid food of the scriptures is then defined by the new covenant, that the new covenant is about the meat of the scriptures. It is about the solid food, that if you want to know the differences between milk and solid food, then the differences would be defined between the old covenant and the new covenant. Law and grace, it has to do with those two subjects, with those two things. So if a person is a believer, they may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that's great. But a person needs to know the differences between law and grace if they're going to mature. And if they are going to understand grace, they have to know law. If they're going to understand the new covenant, they need to contrast it with the old. These are vital things. If you're going to teach somebody about our new life in Christ, it's extremely challenging if you don't have an understanding of what life was like under Moses. Even if a person has never experienced any life under Moses, they don't need to. They just need some instruction concerning it, some guidance concerning it, and then they can certainly relate their own personal experiences as an individual living under their own systems of laws or other laws, or other religions, or other faiths, or other systems of beliefs. They can all be used in the same context as the law of Moses was used. And so I do make a very strong distinction between the milk of the scriptures and the meat of the scriptures 
the solid food of the scriptures to say that the milk of the scriptures is in the old covenant and the meat of the scriptures is actually in the new covenant. That the solid food has to do with us actually maturing after we have come out of the infant stage. It is at that time that we begin to mature after we have gotten past these fundamental elementary teachings and principles that are defined in the scriptures. But for the writer to mention this, for the writer to say this in chapter 5 and in chapter 6, does say an awful lot about who he was writing to. The writer was writing to the Hebrews. And as we know concerning the ministry of the Apostle Paul and what we have recorded in Acts, the people in Israel who were recognized as the Hebrews, who were believers in Christ Jesus, these people were still stuck in the Old Covenant. They were still relatively stuck in the law. And so if the writer is writing to the people at that time, chances are he's writing to the people who believed the very things that we know the Hebrews believed there in Israel, there especially in Jerusalem. Given the historical record that we have in the book of Acts and also the letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians and a few other letters that he wrote, we know that the Hebrews were struggling with the differences between law and grace, with the differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, that they were not making a strong distinction between the two. And for them to continue in the Old Covenant would mean, if they were to do that, if they continued in the Old Covenant and did not really make it to the New in the context of living their daily lives, if that is true, then we should expect them to be babies. We should expect them not to be teaching others about the Lord Jesus or about our life in Him. We should expect that because they would still be so buried under the law, trying to live a life that they could not live trying to obtain blessings from God that they will never be able to obtain, trying to earn favor with Him as a result of their obedience, trying to obtain or sustain their right standing before God. They would be so preoccupied with this that there would be no opportunity whatsoever for them to actually mature into mature believers, that they would remain as a bunch of babies. That is what we should expect. And so for the writer to mention these things that we can identify as being teachings that a person should have learned in the Old Covenant, we should not be surprised by that. And I will continue in the next broadcast to explain this important concept of distinguishing between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, especially when it comes to the subject of good and evil. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 383-53, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net Thank you,